0: This is Punt's Private Eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Punt, it's Tracy. Got a very
1: curious one for you. Concerns an MP. Victor Grayson's the name. Yes, well, he vanished. Into thin air. See what you can do to find him and... Punt, look up your Lenin and look out for the monocled dandy.
0: So it was a misper case, a missing person, name of Grayson. Shut that door. Victor Grayson, whose name conjures images of a monocle dandy sort of chap itself. However, a quick bit of preliminary research tells me that he was actually the first independent socialist MP in Britain. But in 1920, he vanished. And the mystery of his disappearance is unsolved to this day. But when I looked up my Lenin, I find he said... To accept anything on trust is a grievous sin. Simple interpretation is obviously not enough. This is a major blow to my investigative technique, so I needed some expert advice. I opened my contact book and got ex-detective inspector Michael Fowler on the line. Hello? Steve Punt here. Hello, Steve. Good afternoon. Is that your real name? Uh, it is my real name, hey, yes. Hey, you've
1: been brilliant. Yeah.
0: Now, that's a real detective. He even assumes I'd found him under an alias. Shall I tell you who I'm looking at? Yes. Well, he was an MP. His name was Victor Grayson. I don't know much about him so far. I know he disappeared in 1920.
1: Okay. Um, If I was an officer looking at the background to this, I'd be thinking about where and when they were last seen. I'd be looking at what their associates are, where are the haunts. Does that person have any history of previously going missing? Do we have hand to any of that person's letters and the diary? And more importantly, with all this, does any suspicious circumstances about the disappearance and does that person have enemies that would give us any indication why he should suddenly upsticks and disappear or want to disappear?
0: Right, OK. And going back, how far, do you think?
1: I mean, the initial start is obviously when Victor went missing and when it was reported to newspapers.
0: I head for the archives, but I can't find anything from 1920 or thereabouts, which seems a little odd. Was his disappearance not reported at the time? There are, however, reports from years later. This is from the 40s. A possible solution to the 24-year-old mystery of the disappearance of Victor Grayson. There are various versions of his disappearance. In one story it was stated, he registered as an obscure London hotel, walked out and was never seen again. Note that down, London Hotel. Another rumour stated he perished on the bleak Pennine Moors, not far from the scene of his extraordinary triumphs. Lost on the Pennine Moors? Anywhere else? Uh, This chap, Normanton, who is an MP, claiming he died in Australia. Australia? He says he met people in Australia who told him where Grayson had died, and then it says... His informants had offered to take him to look at Grayson's grave. Yes. But he had not been able to spare the time. Oh. The Holmfirth audience listened rather sadly to the announcement that Grayson was dead, for many of them had cherished the hope that someday they would hear once again the spellbinding eloquence. So that was 24 years later, and they still weren't sure if he was alive or not. Holmfirth is last of the summer wine country. And appropriately enough, the case is a bit foggy. If this was the scene of Victor's triumphs, I need to find out what these were and whether the locals could provide any clues to his mysterious fate.
2: I ain't sitting for Yokes. Have you him for Yokes? No. Then I haven't been looking for him.
0: But I am looking for him. And from Manchester, I take an increasingly picturesque train ride through the Pennines, towards Victor's old constituency. We
2: will shortly be arriving at Huddersfield.
0: Grayson would have known Huddersfield's fine Victorian railway station. I'm literally following in his footsteps. Well, almost. A PI on a case always needs some ready cash for jogging witnesses' memories, buying shots of bourbon, or cups of tea off the trolley, whichever is more appropriate.
2: If you've got any dates that you know things happened,
0: that's... my first stop was the local library, where a kindly librarian pointed me to what sounded like a solidly political journal. Quite a lot of copies of
2: the Worker magazine. Quite a lot of left-wing magazines and we've got minutes of meetings.
0: A whole archive of socialist propaganda. It was just like the BBC library. I'm joking. Joking. My first problem was to get to grips with the microfiche machine.
2: When when it's fully out, it can go very fast.
0: Quite slowly. Will that take it forward in time, going
2: to the the right? I think actually it's backwards because the beginning of it seemed to be December.
0: Uh, This is Saturday, July the 6th, 1907... Once I'd got the hang of time travel... Clarion's swimming gala... I soon found uh, our local hero all over the papers. Ah, here we go. July 6th, 1907. Victor Grayson interviewed. In view of the impending by-election in the Cold Valley, the worker reporter called upon Mr Grayson, the Labour candidate at the Queen Hotel. Our representative found Mr Grayson cheerfully wading through a pyramid of correspondence. This is proper journalism, isn't it? On stating the nature of his errand, our reporter was cordially motioned to an easy chair. Uh, And then the interviewer opens up with a tricky question. Would you mind letting me know something of your past, I said. Yes, would you let me know something about it too? Oh, my past, he responded, smiling. Now look me full in the face and tell me if I resemble a sinister person with a past a sinister person with a past. Who had been calling him that? And why? I was born in Liverpool of conventionally honest parents. I understand in early life I occasioned great anxiety to my parents and cost them a pot of money. Needless to say, I've more than made up since for the deprivation of my childhood. What does that mean? It sounds like he no longer deprives himself. Then There's a paragraph with the subheading, a stowaway was rather exciting. And then he goes on, when about 14 years of age, I started out at 8.31 bright summer morning ostensibly to go to school, but really to go to sea. The full rigged bark Ardende was sailing from Liverpool Dock that morning for Coquimbo. Coquimbo? South America? I was dressed like a respectable schoolboy. But to my infinite joy, a handsome Italian sailor named Attilo Verona managed to get me into the forecastle, stuck me in a bunk and placed a long sea bag on top of me. Oh, one of those handsome sailors who'll happily stick a schoolboy under his sea bag. And then the ship leaves. I decided for the sea voyage, he says. All the sailors were cognizant of my presence, he says. They were deliciously kind and genial, handing food into my bunk, more frequently than my appetite demanded. So he stowed away in style. Then he says, um, but after a couple of days, four more stairways were discovered, nearly starving in the hold. And then, uh, after much signaling, a schooner, the Eclipse from Dublin, was induced to take us on board, so all the stairways had been kicked off. Landing us finally at Tenby in South Wales. Meanwhile, my parents were wringing their hands, advertising and all sorts of things to discover my whereabouts. I bet they were. Grayson evidently had form when it came to disappearing without even telling his own family. But as well as his disappearance, it was his appearance that interested me. The photo showed a very well-dressed and dapper young man who claimed to be making up for the deprivation of his childhood, suggesting that he enjoyed the finer things in life. But why the probing of his past? Why the pyramid of correspondence? Grayson was standing for Parliament and went on to win the seat of Colne Valley, which is where I went next, to see where our misper had left his mark.
2: Yeah, that's the stone, if you were interested, the, the foundation stone that Victor Grayson laid in 1911.
0: The manager guides me inside Marsden Socialist Club, where I find my contact Mike Shaw, there. former editor of the Colne Valley Guardian.
1: My own father went to Marsden to listen to him, and he was... Immensely impressed. He said,
0: there's nobody like ya, Victor.
1: He
0: stands up for a working man. Mike is holding another photograph of the same well-groomed gentleman in evening dress, giving a rousing speech to a group of flat-capped, moustachioed and bonneted, but mustachless mill workers. Up to 10,000 people. And
1: they all turned up to listen to this marvellous man who took Corn Valley by a storm.
0: He was still quite a young man at this point, wasn't he?
1: Yes, he was He was only 25 when he was elected an MP. But um, his career after the by-election win was blighted by ill health and then, of course, by
0: the evils of drink. An MP who drinks, who ever would have thought? But ill health in his 20s?
1: He was always smartly dressed and... Always had that aristocratic look, which, if his daughter is correct, stems from the fact that he was not from the slums of Liverpool at all. He was an aristocrat's illegitimate son. So, does he have a past,
0: or is this just gossip?
1: I spoke on the telephone to his daughter, Elaine Watkins, who lived in Brighton not long before she died, and she confirmed that she had evidence to prove that he was an aristocrat's illegitimate son. But she refused to tell me which family he was from. She had found out some years previously that her father was somehow or other given to this family in the back street in Liverpool. Now, it's only conjecture, but... It's presumed that there was an arrangement whereby the family who took him in
0: was paid to bring him up. So, had Grayson cost his parents a pot of someone else's money?
1: But he always had that aristocratic look on all these photographs. He was an enigma.
0: Was he an aristocratic love child now preaching socialism to mill workers? An enigma indeed. He likes a drink or five. Perhaps we have here the original champagne socialist. According to one witness, Grayson's campaign warm-up speaker once told a waiting crowd, Look at that greedy, selfish capitalist coming up the road in a motor car. We have to walk or ride in a tram and he has a car. At this point, someone tugged his sleeve with the words, Shut up, you bloody fool. That's the candidate. Who knows what the locals made of that?
1: Great posh
0: prat. (laughs) But keeping up appearances doesn't explain disappearances. Detective Inspector Michael Fowler had mentioned letters or diaries. And a fine repository of all things Labour and the left is the People's History Museum in Manchester, where I find myself, guess where, in another archive, going through a box of letters between Grayson and a young man called Dawson. Uh, So there's a note in the box here with the letters which says that Harry Dawson was a Labour activist from Liverpool. And he's writing to Dawson my stricken darling need I assure you although I have been out of your sight I have not been out of your mind but you have no beastly right to rear yourself on your hind legs and baste me for cold heartedness month in and out I have pined in my windy garret and left the canker sorrow eat at my melancholy heart I'll burn a player's weight to old Therapina the wizened goddess of reconciliation and fondly lick one another's epidermis on the first a convenient occasion. Even taking into account the florid language of the era, licking another man's epidermis would seem to suggest a level of friendship that in Edwardian England would have meant Grayson leading a double life.
2: <laughs> oh, what a gay day.
0: <laughs> His way with words could also be used against him. In another archive document, he is described as a socialist, not strong in principles and given to phrase-mongering. The person behind this accusation being Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. A sign that firstly Grayson's fame was pretty widespread and secondly, Tracy's leads are clearly solid. Armed with this new intelligence, I head back to Grayson's domain, the Colm Valley, where the mill chimneys once deposited their soot onto the trees. Now a lush green canopy hangs over the river Holm at Honley where Alan Brooke, neo-Luddite and local historian, welcomes me into his garden. Alan traces a direct ideological line to Grayson. In fact, it turns out he eats and drinks socialism.
3: This, this mug's a, a family heirloom. It's dated 1908. It's got a portrait of Victor Grayson in the front, and at back it's got the motto, Socialism, the hope of the people. Which sort of sums up his, as I say, his sort of messianic vision of socialism. It was something that people didn't subscribe to just intellectually. It was almost a religion to him.
0: So uh, that's a mug from
3: 1908?
0: Yeah. And it looks so modern.
3: It's great. And this is the Labour Party's version of it from 1991. And you'll (laughs) see it's very symbolic because Victor Grayson is on the inside of the mug and roundabout it is the the other Labour Party MPs, including Philip Snowden, who was an arch-enemy of Grayson. So they've relegated Victor Grayson to the inside of the mug. Right.
0: Yes. And so was, he kind of appears as you drink your tea. Yeah. It's a positive sighting of Grayson, quite literally a mugshot, and it seems he wasn't quite the Labour Party's cup of tea. In Alan's words, he had arch enemies. To find out who they might have been, I head back to Huddersfield, where I've heard yeah, there's the station, yes, another archive. Um, where am I looking for? I'm looking for? Queensgate. Gate. Uh, there's South Gate, North Gate. A whole lot of gates. Castle Gate. Uh, Queen's Here we are. Uh, how the hell do we get in there? Oh no! Look, University. I've been admitted to special collections, and here it comes. Special collection. We've not got loads on Victor Grayson. Part of it's to come. Valley Labour Party, and that's all in this box here. So, let's have a look. Thoughtful men are becoming awake to the blundering chaos of our competitive commercials. A new spirit of social conscience is being gradually formed. A spirit of rebellion against the hateful and oppressive forms and institutions which have crushed the individuality and hindered the development of the great mass of men. I soon get a sense of Grayson's revolutionary zeal and there are letters of praise from Union branches around the country. i congratulate Comrade Victor Grayson on his splendid fight single-handed in the House of Commons on behalf of the unemployed. There's a great deal of correspondence here. But the Parliamentary Labour Party are less impressed. Victor Grayson's stand in the House of Commons was a mere piece of meaningless melodrama. We have got to fight this silly, tub-thumping spirit of anarchy. It will be thankless and to some extent a heartless job. But it has to be either crushed or it will crush our movement. A major stir. And these are letters from all over the country as well. Um, for him and against. But who came out on top? The eyes or the nays? Front page news here. January 22nd, 1910. Uh, Grayson, not Victor. Defeated candidates smilingly accept the judgement of the Liberal voters of Colm Valley. So he's lost his seat to the Liberals. The nays have it, the nays have it. So if he'd lost his seat by 1910, would these political enemies really be involved in his disappearance ten years later? There's one document left at the bottom of the box. This is a letter to a newspaper, I think a local newspaper, and it says, "Uh, Grayson used to stay at my home when he came to speak in Burnley, and wrote the following in my autograph book on August 1st, 1909. Fit yourself for the best society and then keep out of it. Fit yourself for the best society and then keep out of it. Um, Yeah, keep right out of it, in his case. As an MP, Grayson's life had been literally on the record. But from now on, the paper trail begins to cool. All the archives and newspapers tell me is that he married an actress, went to fight in the Great War, got wounded and came back... There has to be more to it than that. And where is the monocle dandy Tracy warned me about? I brought in Lord Clark, Professor of History and Politics at Huddersfield University. He's been on Grayson's trail for some time and agreed to share intel.
4: In the period after he left Parliament, right up until the end of World War I, he did seem to be in fairly dire financial straits. His wife wasn't a, a leading actress. She didn't earn a lot of money. The only money he earned was actually from lecturing or from writing, which must
0: have been tough for someone who'd got used to the finer things in life.
4: And then after the war, he suddenly turned up living a life of luxury in a very posh flat in Berry Street in centre of London just behind Fortnum & Mason's. He had a suite of rooms there and he paid five guineas a week for it. That's without food, but we're not precisely sure what he was doing. It must have been something that paid well. I believe that if you think of the scene then, the end of World War I... But the British establishment were paranoid, absolutely paranoid about the Russian Revolution. They felt it could happen here immediately after World War I. What we're talking about is the emerging secret services. They didn't understand the politics of the left at the time. They probably still thought Grayson was well in there. And it wasn't a bad bet, because he could have easily, you know, picked up the threads. So they used his contacts, they used his knowledge, and they paid him rather grandly for it. So
0: our firebrand socialist may have turned into a useful asset for the security services, but through his actress wife, he was also well-known in the demi-monde of showbiz London. Is there any connection between these two worlds, and might it account for his mysterious fate? So I've arranged a rendezvous in a public place. In fact, there aren't many places more public than Leicester Square, and I'm on a bench in the middle of the square, and I'm waiting for my contact, who goes by the somewhat disappointing codename, author Jonathan Pyle. At 12 sharp, I was to look for a man drinking a ginger ale. Now, I've just received a communication from my contact and uh, he's waiting for me in a cafe. This just gets better and better.
2: It looks like they're having a ginger ale. they was having
0: a ginger ale. Aha! But I wasn't sure what came next. Would there now be an elaborate exchange of code words?
2: Okay, so i got some documents.
0: No, straight down to business. There's
2: a chap called Maundy Gregory, who was this ex-failed theatrical impresario. Now, this chap was a bit like a cross between Ernst Stavros Blofeld and Liberace.
0: There was a connection between the world of showbiz and the world of intelligence. And his name was Maundy Gregory.
2: Very disarming, loads of money. If you wanted something fixed, he was the man to see. And unfortunately, Victor Grayson took umbrage at his activities because Maundy Gregory was one of the biggest honours traffickers. He would sell, if you wanted an OBE, if you wanted a knighthood or a peerage, he's the guy you would go to and it would cost £40,000 or... £10,000 for an OBE.
0: forty grand for a knighthood, that's a bargain.
2: And it's quite opportune today. He was working for the Liberals and the Conservatives in the Coalition, and he was raising millions of pounds of funds. And he was also working with Scotland Yard and MI5 to keep an eye on suspect people. And so when Victor Grayson decided in Liverpool in 1920 to actually accuse Maundy Gregory and effectively Lloyd George of this corruption, he was doing a very dangerous, and possibly stupid thing. In his speech, he said, and he was a great orator, that this sale of honours is a national scandal. It can be traced right down to 10 Downing Street and to a monocle dandy with offices in Whitehall. I know this man, and one day I will name him.
0: So the monocle dandy was Maundy Gregory, Victor Grayson publicly threatened to expose him as an honours trafficker with links to number 10. But Grayson never got the chance.
2: He got a phone call to say that he should come here, and and then he he had a whiskey and soda, and he said to the people, well, uh, I'm just going away now, Uh, I'll keep that ready for me, I'll come back. Right. And that was the last he was ever seen. Now, I found out that an Italian waiter running this establishment who ran later on some nightclubs for Maundy Gregory. And so it would have been relatively easy for this to be a location where he was spirited away. We've got a phone call for you and he disappears.
0: Interesting. To use the technical term, was Grayson bumped off by Maundy Gregory? His motive was obvious. But was it too obvious? Could some other arrangement have been agreed? My detective inspector friend had told me to try and find out who was the last person to see Grayson, and Lord Clark had done just that.
4: I was very fortunate to meet the lady, Hilda Porter, who was the manageress of this block of flats where Grayson lived. And she was the last person who we could verify the final sighting of Grayson. She said that two men came to Grayson's flat one morning, spent the day with him, and then early evening they came down the stairs, called a taxi. A little while later, Grayson came down with two large suitcases, said to her, I'm going to have to go away for a while, but I'll be in touch, and he went out of that door into the taxi with the two men, and... We've never had a verified sighting of him since, although there have been sightings of him. Yes, some people claim to have spotted him.
1: Did he recognise you? I think he did. He sort of looked at
2: me and then darted across the road as though he'd forgotten something.
0: But did his mysterious visitors want Grayson to disappear or did he want them to help him
4: disappear? I think that spent the day talking about his future, had planned an alternative life for him, and he agreed this was probably the best way forward.
2: Can't complain, he said. He's got his pension and a bit tucked away in a eunuch's trust.
4: And I think the Secret Service must have realised two things. First, he wasn't as useful as they originally thought he was going to be. And secondly, he was involved in some pretty murky characters. He was involved with Maundy Gregory, who was later jailed, for selling honours. Although Gregory was himself working for the security services. So who was watching who? And why? Grayson was also bisexual and remember in those days homosexuality was a crime and I suspect he may have been involved in that underworld in London of such people and he may well have been blackmailing these people as well and some of these people would have been high up members of the British establishment. A
0: British establishment that Grayson railed against and may even have been abandoned at birth by. As I reported to Tracy, Grayson seems to have always led two lives. He was the working class boy with the aristocratic bearing, the socialist come socialite. He fitted himself for the best circles but found they were full of people who bought peerages. Did he spend the remainder of his life literally being another person? If Grayson was paid to keep quiet, then everybody got what they wanted. The government staved off a major scandal, Maundy Gregory kept his lucrative honours business, and Grayson finally got his one-way voyage to a new life, away from the establishment he so despised. We can probably never be sure, because a man so eloquent with language was never heard from again.